Welcome to episode four of the Throwing Haymakers podcast. A little bit later today, we've got some good stuff coming for you. We've got an interview with Aaron Alfonso. Uh, He'll be joining us a little bit later. Uh, And we're also going to break down how the New York Rangers and Carolina Hurricanes series played out. So let's get started there. Uh, Matt, I want to start with you. What's your take on the Rangers getting eliminated from postseason play? Yeah, with me, uh, the Hurricanes, I just think, completely dominated from start to finish. None of the games that they actually played that I watched, the Rangers came out and actually looked like they controlled the pace of play. When you look at how Ajo, Teravainen, and Sveshnikov played on that top line, and I just think, I don't know how many, many points they all finished with at the end of the series, but you look at Sveshnikov being the first Kane in or Whaler in history to score a playoff hat trick, that was an accomplishment in itself. Um, and then Aho with his ability to set up Sveshnikov. And then he made um, that one play that I remember where he looked, he made D'Angelo look absolutely stupid. I just think Aho and Sveshnikov have always been good players. They've been consistent 60 point producers. But I think um, for me, this is where like they really like came into their own. I think with the Hurricanes not getting as much coverage as they do being um, where they're situated, I think everyone now, We'll know who uh, Spashinaho and uh, Andrei Spashinikov are. I don't know if it was just me, but I was disappointed in the way that Panarin and all those um, Panarin's advantage at, and maybe even a bit of Fox as well, how they all played. I mean, Panarin had a goal, I think. He might have finished with a few points, but you look at him being nominated for the Hart Trophy, you would expect him to like actually contribute on offense. Savanajad so also had an absolutely great season, but again, might have had a goal or two. I didn't really see anything from him on either ends. And then Fox, as much as he had a great rookie season, I just think none of the defense on the Rangers helped them out at all. It was all like people are blaming Lundqvist on Twitter and all that, but I just honestly think he couldn't have done anything on multiple calls just because the defense was out of position. And I think that's what ultimately cost them and ended up, um, that ended up getting them swept. But yeah, I just think, at the end of the day, the Hurricanes absolutely dominated, and I'm really excited to see um, how they all play moving forward. So we talked when we are doing our predictions about how the Rangers are a very young team, and this isn't really their window to win a championship yet. It's not really their time to make a deep run, and I liked some things that we saw. It looked like Kako has made up some improvements to his game, um, and I, I would like to commend Adam Fox a little bit. I know plus minus is a stat that some people don't like, but I do think it's worth noting that out of every single Ranger, he's the only one who had a positive plus minus rating throughout the three games against the Hurricanes. Everyone else, they had five guys who broke even, stayed at zero. Everyone else on the roster had a negative rating. Um, so I think it's worth noting that he's a guy who is capable on both ends of the ice, and he it showed a little bit during these uh, this postseason run. Um, didn't put any, up any points, but, I mean, he is a defenseman, so it's not his primary job to produce the offense that falls to guys like Kreider, Panarin, Zabanejad, those guys. Um, so I, I would like to see a little bit more from him in the future, but I don't think he had a, a bad run against the Hurricanes. And, of course, when we look at the Hurricanes' depth, that defense is insane. They've got at least six guys there who can all play top four minutes. I don't see a reason why the Hurricanes shouldn't have won the series. I, I mean – there's not much more to say is that they just have that amazing defensive depth and that propelled them to a win in this series. Yeah, it was absolute domination in every arena. 
start top down. Look at the offense. Uh, Aho and Spechnikov in this series had more goals than the entire Rangers roster. Aho and Spechnikov both had three goals, albeit Spechnikov's three all came in. I believe I believe it was game two where he had the hat trick. But the Rangers had four players on their team score goals. That was it. They all only scored one, and one of those guys was Mark Stahl. So that gives you an idea of how the series went for them uh, in terms of their offense. And as much as I'd like to give Carolina's defense credit, uh, it was a combination of Carolina's goaltending being ballistically good and the Rangers just not performing up to the standard they set for themselves in the regular season. The reason why they were going to be a dark horse contender is because, man, their defense was really iffy among the worst in the league. But they could score, and they had guys who could stop pucks. Uh, And quite frankly, neither of those things actually happened for the Rangers. And when you look at Carolina, they just capitalized on absolutely every deficiency that the Rangers had. And I think you can read a couple things into that. Uh, As much as I'd like to give Ajo and Spechnikov and Tara Vinen all the credit, uh, I think Rod Brindamore had an incredible series in terms of coaching, got all the matchups exactly right. Uh, And then the goaltending, you know, Peter Mrazek had a 940 in his two starts. James Reimer had a 974 save percentage in game three, almost walked away with a shutout. And as good as their defense is, you know, those guys haven't been known. Carolina's been a team that's rolled the past couple years for, you know, not allowing a lot of goals, but still having pretty pedestrian numbers for their goalies because they weren't allowing a lot of shots and they weren't allowing a lot of quality. Now, the Rangers certainly were able to get some chances going in this series, uh, but even when they did, absolutely lights out. Mrazek and Reimer, both of them, maybe in each game putting on some of the best goalie performances we've seen, you know, in the short playoffs so far. And there have been a lot of great performances. Uh, so good on the Carolina netminders for hanging in there and really dominating. Uh, and then on the flip side, you go to the Rangers goalies. Uh, again, the defense for that team was as terrible as it was in the regular season. Uh, but the goalies didn't really help. I mean, I don't want to pin it all on them. They certainly received no help from the team in front of them. I mean, Lundqvist was left out to dry completely in those first two games. Uh, but, you know, he still ended up with a 901 save percentage. Shesterkin came away with a 900 in game three. I thought he was just okay. Uh, but you don't want to read anything into that. He's young, first playoff game, whatever elimination game you don't want to read anything into that I don't think that you know one game like that isn't going to take a hit to Shesterkin's stock Um, but overall the Rangers held absolutely no advantage against the Hurricanes in this series there's no well but they did do this no there's none of that you know the only positive for the Rangers in this series is the experience It was kind of disheartening to see, you know, like Matt brought up, the poor Panarin, uh, poor performances that Panarin and Zibanejad put up, especially. I mean, they had two points, but whatever. They they didn't inspire at all. Uh, But man, Rangers just need to take a seat 
and come back when they're ready. That's what I got from this because I saw a team that, you know, as evidenced by their performance in the regular season, they're going to be ready sooner rather than later. Um, but man, not their year at all. Yeah, just an embarrassing uh, outing for them to get swept in three games since they were the only team, first of all, to get swept in the qualifying round, you know, to come all this way and only sit in the bubble for, what, six days? Uh, it's just got to be disheartening and disappointing uh, for anybody on the Rangers. But, yeah, complete and total domination, like Matt said, by the Hurricanes in that one. Yeah, if I could just commend like two players on the Hurricanes, I I'm just looking at uh the game one stats. I just wanted to point out how a good Trocheck was. He was a reliable guy on his own line, and he controlled the pace of play with uh, the amount of faceoffs that he won. I just wanted defenseman first was Hayden Flurry. I know he's still relatively young, but he played even after the whistles. I think he he showed that he's a physical defenseman that can definitely handle his own in the in the NHL. More clearly trust him in the first game he played. Um, I know there's a lot of penalties, but he played over four minutes shorthanded, which show, goes to show that he's a guy that can be relied upon late in games. And I also wanted to point out Jacob Slavin. Um, he scored the very first goal of this series. He had an awesome three games, in my opinion. And he also um, is one of the best shutdown D. He played um, almost seven minutes and 30 seconds of sh- um, shorthanded on in the first game. And um, he was their ice time leader with over almost 25 minutes a game. And I just think he's a perfect number one guy for their system. Okay. Yeah. I mean, my one concern with Carolina coming into this series was going to be chemistry because they brought in a lot of new pieces at the deadline, like Trocheck, like Brady Shea, like Sammy Botman. Uh, but I think, you know, Trocheck as well, totally agree with Matt's assessment, but Sammy Votman too. Jumped right in, didn't look out of place at all. He didn't even get a game in with the team in the regular season. He was hurt. Uh, but point per game so far, three assists and three games looked pretty good on the power play. I liked his game a lot, so it was really encouraging to see that Carolina's uh, expenses at the deadline are proving impactful immediately. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it should be interesting to see how deep of a run Carolina can make, especially after the – kind of surprising when they made to the Eastern Conference Finals last year, where they faced off against the next team that I would like to talk about, the Boston Bruins. They've kind of looked slow. They haven't They haven't been very good so far this postseason. And, uh, Josh, I want to start with you on this one. What's your take on the way Boston's been playing as they have not yet won a game since the entering the bubble? Yeah, the word I would use to describe them so far is disinterested. Uh I know they were one of the teams that uh, were not in favor of this return to play format uh, because they were going to lose out on their guaranteed number one spot. They were going to win the president's trophy, but potentially not finish with the first seed in the playoffs. And now we know they're not after losing their first two games. Highest they can finish is third. Um, you can choose to look at it two ways. Carolina is another team that was really angry about having to fight for their playoff spot, which they didn't feel like they should have had to. They had a good year. They thought their regular season spoke for itself. Carolina's response was to fight and be mad and play super well and prove that they really did belong there. I thought Carolina had the perfectly appropriate response. 
Boston's completely fallen flat. It's almost like they're just wallowing in their own self-pity. Uh, Marchand has been invisible. Bergeron, invisible. Pasternak, who, you know, as good as he was, I, I've always held the opinion that he's almost kind of been a byproduct of those two guys, uh, which these two games so far have completely changed that for me. Pasternak, and he, he wasn't even with the team in training camp. He should be the worst one on, uh, and he's dominated. But everyone else on that team, Chara looks like his head's in it, and he's fighting. Uh, I've liked their defense so far. McAvoy's been good. Krug's been good. No complaints there. I wouldn't change a thing. Uh, goaltending hasn't been great either. But, you know, that comes with time. But, yeah, offense. Man, Chris Wagner's the only guy on your team, the only forward on your team with two points. Uh, and he's been playing 10.57 a game. So what does that tell you? No one else's hearts are in it. Um, I'm really disappointed, not only in the team, but in uh, Bruce Cassidy, though I did think he did have some strong words to the media, but apparently that didn't do anything for them in the game against Tampa. They didn't really show up until about a third of the way through that game, and then once they actually tied it, they sat back. They look like a team that's trying to figure things out, not a team that's coming off of a cup final. And, you know, as much as I don't like that team, uh, they are pretty damn fun to watch when they're playing well. And they're so incredibly disjointed right now. Uh, they have the skill. They obviously did. They were the only 100-point team in the league this season. That's not to be disputed and not to be undermined. Um but there is absolutely no energy coming from that team. I'm getting no feeling of, yeah, let's go out there and fight for this spot. Let's fight for the reputation that we've built up of ourselves. Uh, and there's just none of that there. Complete complacency. Uh, and I don't, you know, it, it starts to drip down past the coaching and fall on the shoulders of guys like Big Z and Bergeron. You just got to get in that locker room and say something. Because even if you were one goal behind Tampa, the way you let your foot off the gas and allowed that goal with 90 seconds left was horrific to watch. Um, and I get Tampa's good. But you're good, too. You went to the cup final last year. That's what I'd be saying in that room if I was a Daniel Chara. Make these guys realize the team they're playing for and the true talent they have around them. Cause right now they just look completely unsure of themselves. So Josh, off what you just said, um, especially against the, with the game against Tampa Bay, Boston does not appear to be fully there. Um, you look at the way that they played against Columbus. I know it was exhibition, but you look at the way they played there. You look at the way they played against Philly. Their hearts weren't there. They needed I don't know what it was, but they needed some kind of spark. They needed something to get them going because that's something they really haven't been able to do. But now we look at the game against Tampa. We saw Tory Krug get into a fight. He's not a fighter. We saw that spark, something to get them going, and they stepped up, they tied the game, and weren't very far away from forcing overtime. I don't know what else to say. Is that When this team has that spark, when they have something to get them going, they show up. 
They can stay in games. They can win games, and they can perform at a high level. Because we're talking about Tampa Bay, one of the most, on paper, loaded teams in the league. I don't understand what the issue is and why Boston can't seem to get it together, but they need to step up to the plate now. They need somebody to step up and start putting pucks in the net because they're not going to win games if they can't do that. They need to be physical. They need to be fast. They need to go back to what they had last year because if they continue to play that same kind of game but a little more physically, they could go all the way to the finals again. I don't see any team that's standing in their way. Tampa Bay looked a little bit better. They've, they've been playing a little more physical than they did last year, so I give them a lot of credit and playing a, a better game. But Boston's took, like you said, took their foot off the gas. They kind of let Tampa Bay get back into it. If they keep pedal to the metal, Boston could have won that game. But no, they decided to step back and let them get themselves out of the game and let Tampa back into it. And if that's the kind of hockey that they're going to keep playing, I don't see a reason why they won't get knocked out in the first round because this team, frankly, is disappointing to say the very least. Uh, this as far as how they performed so far. They need to step up and get their heads back into the game because. If they want to win, this is not the way they're going to do it. Yeah, I mean, the Bruins have looked lost at times. I mean, like you said, like you guys both mentioned, they had a great – they like with Krug starting the fight and then being able to come back and actually create some scoring shades against Tampa, like the way they looked, but then they seemed to just fall apart. Tampa took the lead and they ended up losing their second straight game. I mean, I'm not a big lover of the Bruins, but I've always – Managed to think of them as a, a team that always shows up when the the time matters the most, and that's in the playoffs. They've always, even though they haven't looked good at times, they're always a team that can step up and dominate, reaching the Stanley Cup final last year. Like Josh mentioned, when you have Chris Wagner being your top point getter on Ford, it's just there's something that's clearly wrong. Guys like Pasternak and Marsha and haven't gotten any points, and then you look at Bergeron. I mean, he's still been good on the faceoffs, sixty percent of his draws, but he's only had one assist. So you like to see more from your top guys. And then the one defenseman that I kind of liked the way he played last game was uh, Charlie McAvoy. I mean, he managed to score a goal. He looked like he was kind of into it, but when none of of your teammates are actually into it, I don't think it really helps either. And then touching base on the goaltending, Rask has been all right. I mean, he's had a, he has a 0.914 save percentage. He's played well in uh, the game that he played. He led in three goals on 35 shots, but um, Halak in, in against the Flyers, I was kind of disappointed. I mean, he led in four goals on 29 shots, and he had a .862 save percentage. So I think if Raska doesn't perform, they need Halak to be at the top of his game or else they're not going to really go far once the first round starts. So uh, one of the most terrifying situations in hockey the other night in the Toronto game, we saw Jake Muzzin go down. Wasn't a fun play to watch. Stretchers came out, and Muzzin ended up uh, being stretched off the ice, taken to a local hospital. So Muzzin is now expected to be okay. He's back with the team. Uh, positive situation, it appears now. But he will likely not return to the team for the rest of this series. So, Josh, being our big Toronto, one of our big Toronto fans here, I want to start with you. What do you think it's going to look like without Muzzin in the lineup? Yeah, well, I guess – uh yeah we'll see uh for reference we're filming this on thursday so uh by the time you guys uh get this the leafs may be out of the playoffs so we'll see if this uh holds the test of time so i may regret my words here but uh today starts the murdy marinchin era of toronto maple leafs playoff hockey in 2020 
I do expect him to draw in. Uh, I would much rather have him over Sandine, uh, purely because, well, Muzzin's impact all around the ice cannot be overstated for that team. Uh, he does do a lot on the penalty kill. And the penalty kill is a lot of what keeps that team going defensively uh, for all their deficiencies at even strength. Uh, they do have a pretty good penalty kill that emerges every once in a while. Uh, to give them a big defensive boost. Uh, and I would really like to see Marincin, uh hold up on some of those and keep it going. But the one guy everyone needs to start looking at now to produce, well, I guess two guys, now that I'm thinking about it, are Travis Dermott and Tyson Berry. I am not enthralled with Sheldon Keefe's choice uh, to keep the Riley CC pairing together. Uh, CeCe's been Cody CeCe. He's been exactly like anyone would have expected him to be, which is not that good. And say what you want about how Barry's performed this year. He still got his totals to an okay level. And he had an incredibly slow start. Uh, I think in November, December, he was on pace for like 20 points. And he ended up with almost 40. Uh, so, you know, that, that tells you what you need to know about how well he was still able to perform under Keefe's tutelage. But he's got to show up here. Uh, he's 29. He's played in a bunch of playoff games. Well, not a bunch, but he's played in some playoff games with Colorado. Uh, he's been around the block quite a few times, and he's a veteran. I think he's played almost 600 NHL games in the regular season. He's got to get some shifts with Riley here and try and get some more offense generating because you need to score first in this game tonight. You need to score first in every game of this series because you can't let Columbus get ahead of you because once Columbus is going to get ahead of you, they'll be in your heads. And Toronto's, A, going to lose that mental battle. And if Corpusalo is still Corpusalo, how he's been so far, Toronto's not going to score a goal. We saw that in game one. Now, albeit their offensive systems were much better in game two, and I think you can look for even more improvement in game three now that those forward lines are going to stay the same, have some more time to gel together. Um, we'll see. It'll be a very interesting next couple days uh, for sure to see if Toronto can hang on because that – injury changes the entire complexion of this series. Yeah, I mean, Muzzin is a big off for the Leafs. No one likes to see a stretch come out onto guys, especially when it's the team that you hope that goes all the way into the Stanley Cup. He was playing really well with Hole on that top line. They both looked like they knew what they were doing. They were able to shut down uh, Columbus's opposite, um, top lines pretty pretty well. I think no matter how well Martin Brinson plays, he's not going to replace what Muzzin brings to the lineup, and that's a physical guy who Columbus always has to watch out for in and around the net. They know he can uh, step up and make a big player, make a big hit when the time matters the most. He hasn't really made an impact on the score sheet so far, but I think it's as a defenseman, especially a stay-at-home, not a, a typical stay-at-home defenseman, but a guy who plays defense really well. Um, he's a guy that you might not want to recognize just because a defenseman who plays well and is shutting down scoring opportunities, a guy that you don't really notice on the edge, more the offensive side of it. Just if Marinson plays bad in this in this game, hopefully by the time this comes out, we uh, 
he's played well, but um, if he draws in and he plays terrible, I don't think Keefe will hesitate to put either Standing or Lilligren in there. He's seen all three of them develop with the Marlies before he was promoted to the Leafs have coach, of course. And I think he has a, he's not a coach that is afraid to throw the young guys into the fire because he knows what Sandin is capable of and he also knows what Lilligren is capable of. Merinson has definitely more playoff experience than those guys, but at the end of the day, they want the guys that are playing their best hockey in the lineup and gives them the best chance to win. So uh, it's never a good thing to see Muzzin go down, and I hope if we do manage to move on that he comes back and uh, makes an impact with us. And I will say, like, this is a pretty big blow for Toronto. You're talking about a guy who is in your top four. That's that's not easy to replace someone who fits that role. And to replace a guy of Muzzin's caliber, where he brings a physical aspect that has been lacking for some time from Toronto, a part of the game that they really need to improve on, that, that physical end, uh, physical play in the defensive end. It's not easy to replace. So I think it'll be interesting to see how they do uh, without him now, uh, but obviously hoping him all the best in his recovery. All right, so that does it for what we had as far as, uh, you know, topics going on around the NHL right now. So now we're going to go to our interview with Aaron Alfonso. All right, so I'd like to welcome to the Throwing Haymakers podcast, Aaron Alfonso played three seasons with the Ottawa 67s of the OHL and another season in the OHL with the Sioux Greyhounds uh, and also spent three years at Lakehead University. So, uh, Aaron, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Thanks, guys. Really good. Really good. Thanks. How about yourselves? Not too bad. Good. Good. You're doing just fine, Aaron. Good to hear, buddy. So I wanted to get things started a little bit talking about your uh, coaching career. So from my understanding, you've coached uh, the Hughes brothers who have now both made it to the NHL playing for Vancouver and New Jersey. So what was it like to be able to see them from a development side of things? Um, well, Quinton was the one that I coached. Um, and uh, I was the forward coach while Q- Quinton was a D-man. But um, he was he was a he was probably one of the, the most special players that I'd ever shared ice with, um, and I'm talking like I've I've been on the ice with Crosby, played a game against him. So he's he's an exceptional. Um, I'd never really seen a dynamic of a hockey player like Quentin, and especially with his size, uh, what he was capable of doing. So I'm not surprised at all. Um, I'm really I'm happy to see his uh, success in the in the NHL level so quickly. But I knew he was going to change the game completely. Um, he's he brings like a whole different element to like of an approach to training players and stuff because of what you're seeing a hockey player is capable of, especially a defenseman is capable of. So he's kind of like a McDavid as far as like a forward, but you don't you don't really see too many defensemen getting uh, uh, the the real focus and attention like a, a forward does. That's an exceptional forward just because all the goals and that kind of stuff. But, you know, Quinton is, uh, is he's, he's super young. He's got an incredibly bright future in the NHL, and it's really nice to see. So I'm super happy for him. And then Jack, um, I, didn't, I didn't really know too much about Jack when I was uh, starting my coaching room because it was my second year of coaching that I coached Quinton. So – I was just kind of getting back into the the young the young kids knowing their names, who's good, that kind of stuff. So when I uh, when I first started coaching, my very first year, I was um, coaching the team that was a year younger than Luke's team. 
So they were the 2004 group. And I saw Luke and I'd heard about the Hughes kids from that. And uh, Luke's a great player too. He's a, he's a bit of a mix between Jack and, and uh, Quentin. And I haven't seen him in a little bit, so I know he's, he's progressed and whatnot. But when I saw Jack after I'd heard about him, um, I was just like, holy crap, man, this kid is like a, this, again, same kind of thing as Quentin. Like the size doesn't hurt him at all. He, he slows the game down. He plays the game like, like a Lemieux with the size that he had in the sense of just like orchestrating the whole ice, making the game slow at the pace that he wanted it at. He could just play with people. So when he came, he got called up to us, we were in minor midget. He was in the Bantam season. And uh, he scored two goals with us in the two games that he was with us. And it was the first time that him and Quentin played together. So it was pretty cool. And then um, just to, like, even see them, you know, showing pictures of that kind of stuff on the NHL, like, while they play against each other and just seeing how that whole uh, – that whole family's now been kind of shown in the media. It's, it's cool. I, I got to see them essentially grow up and got to see Quentin as a, as a young teen into, you know, growing into a man. And now he's a, he's an exceptional hockey player with a bright future. So it was cool. Yeah. I, I think it's been really interesting to see how size has adapted to the game because you've seen it change so much in recent years and how, well, guys like Kyler Yamamoto and even, you know, on a lower scale, Rocco Grimaldi in Nashville are able to succeed. Um, but you look ahead and, you know, we were talking about him last week, a guy like Quentin Byfield, who's got yep. a huge frame coming up and it doesn't slow him down. It doesn't inhibit his offensive talent, right? Uh, that you're starting to see a, kind of a new breed of power forward that I don't, think has been seen yet I won't even see seen in a really long time I think it's something that's really kind of completely brand new to the league uh yeah so I mean it's certainly interesting to hear your take on it and how they've exhibited that since the very beginning for sure yeah yeah like uh you know when I was growing up um Eric Lindros was like the only one that was a power forward with skill that was like he, he really was one of the most elite players in the NHL type of thing. Outside of that, you didn't really have a big, strong, forceful guy that could essentially like set the standard physically on the ice and bring advantage to your team physically on the ice, but could also do it with a skill set and you know production with points as well. So right. it's really it's really cool. It's really good to see the the growth in the game, the growth in the certain type of player to be able to bring out different potentials within themselves. I think it's kind of like a, you know, you're seeing like basketball, for instance, like there's a lot of tall guys that are making threes all over the place. And it's kind of the same thing. Like that was a finesse thing for a tall guy to do. And it's rare to have that happen, but now not anymore. Right. And so I feel like hockey's kind of starting to incorporate some of those unorthodox styles of players because in hockey it was like you'd always have that same kind of like approach to how basketball used to be with like a big guy plays like this and a small guy plays like that and was like you if their game was physical which where it was in like the early 2000s mid 90s was like there's not too much room for a small skilled guy unless he was really 
um, dynamic and able to be elusive with his, with his body and get away, get, you know, get away from all this physical play, but to be able to, uh, to see, you know, the game has changed so much from a physical standpoint, there's not clutching and grabbing, there's not big checks and stuff like that. The, the focus is on the puck, the focus is on the pace of the game. The focus is really on the goals being put into the net because if you got more goals than the other team, no matter how many hits that happened, you win the game. So I think it's it's cool just to see the the stuff that isn't necessary in the game to be kind of eliminated, and then you're making room for a more a potential of the things that need to be there, the vitals of the game, which is the speed, the puck movement, the the you know the, obviously the goal scoring. But now you're seeing huge guys that are you know, developing that skill set from young. And when I was growing up too, a lot of times, like from a, from a development standpoint, the, the person that was developing the, the kid, it would like put, he'd put them in a box too. It's like, if you're a big guy, they would train you like this. If you're a small guy, they'd train you more like that. So now you're seeing just that whole range of versatility being offered for everybody to learn how to play the game at the best level, which is fast, skilled, and with a lot of intelligence. Yeah. I mean, you, you don't have to look much further than Marty St. Louis. Like, in 20 years, there's going to be documentaries made about that guy, right? About what yeah. he – not only what he was able to do, but also the time in which he came into the league right around that lockout with all the rule changes and how the league was starting to realize, okay, we got to start the process of orienting things back towards a more skill-based game and he was able to just come in and again he was so small but he was skilled and smart enough that he was able to fly under the radar just like you said um so yeah he was a special guy he changed the game i think for a lot of those young guys in a sense to give them the confidence that we can do this there are ways to be able to get by in the game and then you know the game just started slowly evolving to a way of like more in favor for for speed and less in favor for clutching and grabbing and hitting so it's everybody's got their own you know preference of how they like the game to be but at the end of the day I think the most uh, the best way is the safest way and the most entertaining and I think like you know we don't you don't need to have guys hurt and you don't need to have so many possibilities of guys being hurt in order to entertain and I it's nice to see hockey shifting in that dynamics because it's it was it was uh even when I was playing still there was some crazy things that I'd seen like some veteran players do just some ways that they learned how to clutch and grab or stick you in certain ways and cut your skin and stuff like that where it's like that kind of stuff's completely out of the game so it's it's nice to see but yeah everybody has their preferences though so if I could just chime in quickly, um, Aaron, you did you did a train um like, a, like attend the Atlanta Thrashers development camp, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so like I, just how was your overall experience with that and like learning from the pros and everything? Sure, well, that was awesome. Uh, my first experience of learning from pros was actually my lockout year. My first year in the OHL was the NHL lockout. It was two thousand four, two thousand five lockout. So right before Crosby was in the NHL. And uh, I was playing in Ottawa, so we had, you know, the Sens were locked out. And so there was a lot of guys that were living in Ottawa that needed ice just to keep fresh and that kind of stuff. So we had Spezza, uh, Ray Emery, 
Brian McGrath and Daniel Alfredson, um, Todd White. So we had like maybe a good six or seven. Oh, uh, Dominic Hasek was there too. But <laughs> yeah. they, yeah, yeah, Hasek on yeah. his tail end of his career was pretty funny. But um, those kind of things was really cool for us to like, you know, sit in a dressing room with some veterans and, you know, they didn't have any agenda other than like, hey, we're just kind of chilling here, going out and making sure we're keeping fresh on the ice. So they were open to giving us advice. Uh, it was just cool to just, you know, sit beside Daniel Alfredson and have chewing tobacco with him and talk to him about like stories that I saw him do something and ask him what actually happened, different things like that. It was really cool. And then like in practice, when you're on the ice, you get to either see them do certain things or they teach you something. So that was my first experience of seeing like uh, learning from a professional, learning from someone that's got a lot more experience in this area. And then going to Atlanta was like, now I'm kind of competing with the professionals. So there wasn't as much of a, like uh, a learning place that I was standing in as much as I was in, like, I got to prove myself and I got to, um, I got to perform essentially. So it was, it was amazing to see the, the level of competition there in the OHL. There's a, there's kind of a comfortability factor where there's like some guys that don't really care to make it in the NHL. They're just good hockey players and they're just going as far as they can. So their care factor isn't the same as guys that are like, I want to make it. This is all I want in life. And then when you get up to the NHL, it's like, everybody's like that. So every single, you know, dump in has a huge battle in it. Every single face off is such, there's such a battle to win the, each draw. Like all those little things were like you dot I's and cross T's in every single situation there. So that was a cool thing to experience and just be able to see the, the professionals operate like that um, was eye opening. It was great for me to be able to go back in the OHL and, bring that kind of um, experience to my play in the OHL and and then also just like seeing like was we played I think five exhibition games so you know I got to play against some really good players too I did in the OHL as well but it's different when you're at that professional age like these guys are that much better when you're playing against Stamkos and Tavares when they're like 16 17 it's it's a dynamic it's cool but to, to play against those guys when they're 20 and in their 20 to thirties, you've got like a whole different, a whole different person that you're playing against. This guy's a lot more seasoned of his skill set and what he's capable of doing. And I played against guys like Datsuk and Zetterberg. Kyle Quincy was a big, big guy on Detroit. Ooh. Manny Legacy was on Detroit. Played against Dan Girardi in, in uh, New York. Dubinsky in New York. Uh, actually, Dubinsky might've been with Columbus at the time. I can't remember exactly, but, there was, there was a lot of good players in there that like when they're seasoned like that, the game is, it's fun. It's a really good, it's a really different dynamic than just like playing minor hockey or playing in the OHL even. Yeah. And then um, in the past, we've had a lot of conversations about how your concussions have like impacted your life and the, the amount of pain that you've gone through after your uh, office on and his career ended. Um, for the people who don't know, you just want to touch base on how serious concussions can actually be. Yeah, sure. Um, the one thing that I learned from my experience with concussions, they've, they've changed the approach, which is a good thing. But when I was playing, it was like, there wasn't much of a, of a protocol in place in order to make sure that the person's going to actually heal before they play again. 
and to be able to really get a, a good assessment of the whole concussion. It was like just, you know, the person, like I would kind of give them some feedback of what I'm feeling and they would just kind of guess based off of what I'm, how I'm feeling, how they should heal, how they should like kind of treat me. So I found that I, I've learned that playing before you've had a full concussion being healed and then getting concussed again could be one of the worst things that you could do in a concussion healing. And so I had a lot of those experiences myself in the concussions that I went through with my game. But there's a lot of uh, players now that they have that good protocol in place where it gives them that cushioning to actually heal. Like there's usually a, a two-week two time period that they need no symptoms. And then once they have a two-week period of no symptoms at all, then they can have a week of practicing and they have a week of practicing with no symptoms, then they can have physical contact in practice. So that process, it really, like, uh, really makes sure that the brain is healed fully. And then in regards to like, what kind of like results you can experience as far as aftermath from them, like it's, it's a tough thing. If you don't, uh, your brain is, is essentially like your operating system for your whole body, your whole life, your whole mind, everything. So you know, within a field that I was growing up in, it was all performance based. And I would essentially judge myself based off how I could perform too. So all those kind of things would come into play. There's a lot of, because the brain is responsible for so many things in the body, there's a lot of things that can affect the brain. So like every, everything from walking, just moving and looking. So having motion while you're looking around that would create symptoms. Just having too much light around me would create symptoms from having too much sound. So all those kind of things can really bring a, a real tough situation for you to live life comfortably. And for, to know that, you know, all of that really stemmed out of a brain injury makes you know how, how vital the brain is. It, it is. And also how important it is to protect the brain and make sure that the brain is taken care of if it is hurt. So I, it, from a coaching standpoint, a lot of times I saw when I first got involved, I saw kids that had like a really, I call it like a sprint mentality opposed to like a marathon mentality. And like a marathon would be like, Hey man, you got, you're 14 years old. You can play this game until you're 34. Or the sprint mentality would be like, I need to play right now. And if I don't perform in this next shift, like my, my game's ruined. So kids uh, would have that dynamic within them a lot of times. And when they would get a concussion, they would want to try and get back to playing as soon as possible. Even if it was like, I kind of feel good enough, so I want to play. And I would just say to kids, like, you need to make sure that you're thinking about the whole picture here. And you need to not care about 10 games or even 15 games that you might miss because that can alter 15 years ahead of you. So just having like that little bit of guidance because of experience, I think was, it was nice to be able to see kids take care of themselves and then make the right decision on when they can go back. And then you end up seeing them not get hurt. They're not, not vulnerable to the first body check they take. They're going to get a concussion. I think Crosby was like the first person that kind of set that standard with like the amount of time that he stayed out. Uh, I can't remember what year it was, but he was out for like almost a full season. 
And like everybody wanted him to be back, all the fans, all the team, like all of his teammates, obviously, and his coaches. But the trainers were like, this investment that Sydney that we have in Sidney Crosby isn't worth testing him out for a couple games and possibly ruining this investment. And that really changed the whole picture, the whole perspective, I think, for the game and their take on the concussions. It's interesting, and I think that unlocks just a whole bigger aspect of hockey culture, too, that fans, teams, players, everyone just has a really big problem with delayed gratification. Uh, you know, not only just in injuries, but like I remember, uh, I forget who was using this example the other day, but Alex Ovechkin uh, a few years ago had like a 34-goal season, and everyone was saying, that's it, he's done. <laughs> Not good totals by his standards. It's 34 goals. How many 30 goal scorers were there in the NHL this year, right? Uh, and then you look at what he came back to doing. And all that year, it was trade him, blow up the team. You know, there's a lot of gut reactions in hockey that yeah. certainly sometimes can pan out the right way. It's not always a bad thing. But, uh, you know, it's it, it's interesting to hear you say that you know, it's evident to anyone that the NHL's protocol and everyone's protocol surrounding concussions has improved. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone's going to dispute that, but there's certainly, you know, it's only so much of the battle. You know, seeing earlier this week, Michael Furland on the Canucks, who was out for so long, comes back in game one, gets in a fight, he's done. So it's things like that where, yeah, you've made a lot of progress as a league but, it, you know, there's never a good time to let your foot off the gas. Um, yeah, in terms yeah of very true. Coming up with those advances and things like that. Um, so it's certainly promising to hear your take on it that, you know, there have been strides in how the culture operates and how protocol yeah. operates. But, you know, there's no absolute for sure. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's advancing still. I, I truly believe it is. But. I think there's points where like you see more of a momentum in the advancement and it's like, you know, the fans are all concerned about this. Parents are concerned about this. So now you see a big push on the advancement of concussion approaches and protocols and all kinds of things that they can do, develop the equipment, whatever it is. But then once that focus kind of changes, then they stop caring as much. But I think, you know, for a sport like football to have, such a repetitive head uh, trauma that happens in the game. And it's such a focus there. I think that focus will, if they keep finding ways to advance their um, safety in the game for the brain, then it'll trickle down into the other professional sports too, with that need it. And hockey's hockey's the next sport that would need it after football. But it's funny because like a lot of guys, they don't quite understand the difference between hockey's physicality to footballs it's like football is very like really close hits you know like there's there are rare times where you get an open field hit but in hockey the speed can be so much different that one guy's carrying than another guy's carrying and their speed could be both of them are carrying a bunch of speed so speed with collision is much different than just like you know, kind of bump in good hard collisions, but they're just straight impact. So I, I think uh, hockey players, they haven't necessarily 
gotten their their credit for the athlete that they are and the toughness that it takes to be a hockey player and like also also the physicality in the game how how dangerous it is at times and stuff it's go kind of goes under the radar i feel you can trace it back to that whole sprint versus marathon mentality you were just talking about where football is a very choppy game i mean yeah it's a chess match in the strictest sense Mm -hmm. where everybody gets their turn uh and so you have a lot of chances for those injuries to happen because it's so segmented but the positive coming out of that is you know as soon as it happens you get to pull them out the teams are huge you have like five backups at every position that you go just chuck a guy in it's not like that in hockey where it's such a team sport where you're rolling four lines all game and every single person on that team can make or break a game. They can make or break a series. Um, and it's a chess match that never really stops, you know, aside from a TV timeout, but how much is that really? Um, yeah. It's not stopping. They're still talking they're figuring right. out what they need to do. And yeah, it's rarely stops. It's like until intermission, like, and then with football, it's like if the ball's on the other, if, you know, the, the, the defense is on the field and you're the offense, you can just kind of hang out. You just chill. Yeah. Chilling. Yeah. Yeah. So hockey's, uh, I do enjoy that aspect of hockey. For sure. I'm going to jump in here. Quick. What is, is there a big difference between Canadian college hockey and like the NCAA? Yeah. Big time. Um, so first of all, like you would, uh, for the American um, college, you would essentially play junior hockey, junior A hockey in Canada, or sometimes you go over to the U.S. and play like a, they have a development league called the USHL. You would play there before you can go to the NCAA because if you play in the OHL, you um, jeopardize your eligibility. Um, okay. The OHL is considered, it's considered semi, it's considered professional because it's semi-professional. Okay. So if you, and you, you do kind of get paid a little bit of money while you're in the OHL. So as a college athlete, from the state's point, they don't allow anybody to yeah. accept money, right? Yep. So there's that part. Um, there's the aspect of like, you know, from a player's uh, perspective, you know, I only know this in hindsight just because I know a lot of guys have played college and whatnot. The, you, can, you can replicate the OHL experience. It's very similar to an okay. NHL experience or just a professional hockey experience. Okay. But you can't, you can't replicate the college experience. As far as like having, you know, like your whole school fan base being like your fan base and you're like a a, a big deal on the campus and that kind of stuff like that kind of that kind of element. uh, It's it's not really you can't get that anywhere else. So that's one thing that I've learned about just the college sports is like in in the States. It's such a it's such a different beast from from the college here. But what the amazing stuff about the CIS and college in Canada or university hockey in Canada is that like you get all graduated players from major junior hockey for the most part. So they're like in their, you know, 21 to 25 year range. And so it's, it's good hockey. It's a lot of guys that they don't care as much because they've kind of gone through their, I care so much about playing stage, but they're still skilled. There's a lot of really good hockey that's played, but we went out um, two of the years that I played at Lakehead, we went over to Minnesota Duluth and played the Gophers 
and uh, the crowd was just so cool. It was such a different experience than anything I'd ever experienced. And to to see the skill set and the it was like all their because their players are around the same age. They're like twenty nineteen to twenty four too, but they're all playing to to get their NHL contracts or get drafted in the NHL, that kind of thing. So the, it was a whole different like place of where we are in playing. And we got smoked both times because they, they're like a whole team that like they're, they're the NCAA league matters a lot with the the CIS league. It doesn't matter. It's just kind of, it's just an extra thing that's there for the athletes to be able to enjoy going to school with. So yeah, it's, it's, it's different, but it's got, it's, it's got, it's, it's values of in Canada still. Yeah. My big thing was just trying to figure out, you know, are there like a lot of NHL prospects that play in Canadian college? Not so much prospects. You'll get guys that like a Joel Ward situation where Joel finished, he finished in the OHL, came to the CIS, played in the CIS. And then when he was done, he went and played pro after. And then he, he made his way up to the NHL. Yep. You'll see guys like that, but you don't see too many prospects. No. Okay. Yeah. With me going to Ryerson, just like like Aaron just said, the it's it's pretty much a graduation league for the OHL. Like okay. Ryerson, they had like six or seven graduates all from like OHL, WHL, QMJHL. Okay. Just coming in in the in the United States, like he said, it's a lot of you're battling to get an NHL position. And with yeah. us up here, it's like it's still good hockey. It's like look at the seventh round pick for the least um, Zachary Boutier. He didn't sign a um, contract with the Leafs this past off season, so his rights expired, and then he he's going to Quebec. Yeah, okay. a lot less. Just because I'm used to like I'm like in the Massachusetts area, so I'm used to like the Boston College, UMass Law. They're all yeah. battling it out, Frozen Four, and so I'm just like I have no yeah. idea how different that is for Canadian yeah. college at all. <laughs> cool, yeah. cool, yeah. It's it's di- it's different in that sense. Like where you would see prospects in the Canadian college, it's like they are already expired, like Matt yeah. said. Okay. But yeah, they're still, they're still good players. It's just, they're kind of seasoned and they're, they're out out of, out of the kind of, I care and I'm trying to play hockey anymore. Now they're going to be students and move on with life. But you do see some Joel Wards and stuff like that. There, there are some guys that even have, that have gone to just play pro after not necessarily play in the NHL and guys go out and play in the American league or go play pro in Europe and stuff. And so it's a, it's a good way to get, because the major junior will pay for your schooling. So you can utilize that and then go out and, you know, go play professional somewhere else after. Yeah. And most guys, they'll finish their OHL career. And like he just said, they OHL pays for their tuition. So most guys are just focused on getting, getting a degree and then pretty much starting their regular lives. And they have hockey on the side to just play. Yeah. Where you see in the NCAA, it's like some, most guys are like, I'm just here to be an athlete student. Like, it's the net. We're student. We're student athletes at yeah. Canadian hockey or Canadian University hockey. Just because you mentioned the USHL, and yeah, that may be the technical equivalent of the major juniors in the U.S., but it's such a centralized. Like it really doesn't expand out of the Midwest of the U.S. I'm on the West Coast. I'm in Portland, Oregon. Uh, okay. So I'm I'm kind of the weird transplant state because Portland has the Winter Hawks. Uh, so it is a WHL city. Uh, so it's interesting to see, uh, you know, I get that vibe of how the impact of the impact that those major junior teams have on their communities and developing, garnering interest and things like that. But mm-hmm. for a lot of the U.S., that's the purpose that colleges serve. They take the place of 
the 67s and your swift current Broncos, yeah. uh, you know, because there isn't a solid junior infrastructure, especially out where Brandon is over on the East Coast, like he was mentioning yeah. with Boston College and things like that. Yep, right, well, right. Look at a, yeah, like look at a school like in the Sun Belt, like Arizona State, that's got a D1 team now that's doing half well. Uh, I know they've yeah. produced a goalie, Joey Decord, who's in the Senators organization. Um, yeah, University of Alabama, Huntsville. Uh, Cam Talbot, who's done pretty well for Calgary over the past week or two. Uh, You know, so, I mean, that's kind of how the system works, that really in the U.S., the NCAA is much more comparable to the Canadian hockey leagues that you would think. Yeah, definitely, definitely, yeah. The USHL is kind of like a – it's a prep league for for the NCAA, and you'll you'll get Canadian kids that will go over there because the prep league – in Canada isn't that good. There's not too much money that's involved in it. There's not great coaching. Uh, it's, it's half decent, but when you have opportunities to go into the USHL, you know, the USA, USA takes care of their, their athletes, man. They take care of their sports big time. So guys do utilize that for a prep league a lot. Yep. Uh, so Aaron, since we're, we're talking about like the college experience, I want to talk about yours a little bit. So when you're playing with Lakehead, what's that like in terms of, the difference from an NCAA perspective, like, you know, traveling around in Canada and going to different schools and playing in tournaments and stuff. Uh, what was your experience like doing that? Well, Lakehead's a little bit different than most of them because we're, we're up in Thunder Bay. So it's like, uh, way up to dr- yeah, to drive, yeah. it's like a 16 hour drive to be able to get down South and down South. Like you got about an hour drive to most schools, maybe a two hour drive, depending on where you're at. Um, so we would typically the way Lakehead worked was we would play uh, a weekend away. So we'd fly to Toronto and then we'd get on a bus and we'd bus out to wherever we were playing. And then the next weekend we'd play at home just so that it wasn't too hard on our schooling schedule. Um, and uh, so that, I mean, it wasn't too much different than the OHL as far as like traveling to a city, getting into a hotel, you know, you're in a room with a couple of the guys or one guy. And um uh, we'd be on the bus. That, that kind of atmosphere is it's always fun for sure. It, it was it was cool because like we'd all, you know, like I said, the OHL is a it's a different experience. It's like you're kind of you're kind of like learning what this whole experience is like as far as junior hockey and traveling and going different places with your teammates. And then when you're at the CIS, it's like you've already gone through all of that. So now there's it's a different element of fun. Even though the hockey wasn't the best, my kingdoms were at like the highest points of my playing career. I still had some of the best times that I'd ever had throughout my playing career because of the fact that like there's that cool flight aspect. There's the, my brother there. There's the the hotels and the buses and all that. And we're all like we're all grown up from all that, so we get to still have a lot of fun with it. Yeah, and um, looking at your schedule, like um, your first season at Lakehead in 2008-9, you played 24 games, and then in 2009-10, and you then went to 11, and then 2010-11, you went five. Is that that was your concussions just yeah. getting yeah. bad? Yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah, my second year, um, I had I had two that were um, they were at the point where I was like I didn't think I was going to even play the rest of that season, and. I, I got like kind of green lights from the doctors. They said I was okay enough. And I was just at a point where 
I was like a, a stubborn hockey player just from habit. It was like, that's all I knew. So um, it, once I got a green light, I kept going with that stubborn hockey player. But when I came into my last season there, I got a concussion from just like receiving a puck in the neutral zone. I just tapped to my centerman and the D-man just came up and he didn't even hit me. He just kind of like rode me out. And that little bit of a kind of a whiplash there yep. gave me a really bad concussion. I was, I was done for like five months. And uh, at that point, the, I got CAT scans and stuff and the doctors were like, you, you can't play anymore. So it was, it should have, I should have, honestly, I should have really not even played at Lakehead with the state that I was in. You know, in hindsight, I got to still play with my brother. I got to have a lot of fun there and I got a lot of experience that I helped me learn and helped me grow into the person I am. So I'm happy about it. And it's interesting. Uh, you're talking about your schedule there with uh, how Lakehead out there in Thunder Bay formatted that in order to, you know, actually help you prioritize your schooling. Uh, yeah. And I know uh, this high school I went to is – it's in the neighborhood that a lot of the billet families are for the winter Hawks team. So I, I went to high school with a fair amount of these kids who were playing. Uh, yep. and I, I never really had classes with them, but a lot of teachers that I had, I was talking to them about, like I had, I had three teachers who had Cody glass the year before I was right. So it's things like that. And it's, yeah, there's yeah. absolutely no, connection between the whl and the schooling and it's just so tough to oh, really? you know, basically tailor these guys education plans around you know the the life centers way more around the hockey playing in those junior leagues in canada than i think it would either playing uni in canada or playing in the ncaa uh, so it does kind of make sense from that standpoint where you were saying that you know some younger Canadians may want to drop down, play in the USHL and then try and make it in the NCAA too, just because you're able to get some sort of education. You know, like you were talking about way earlier with the whole transition of, you know, once you're done playing, what are you supposed to do? I mean, concussions are not, it's an extremely hard transition to make. Exactly. Um, I think as electric and as skilled as some of that whl ohl q hockey can be uh there's certainly a lot of forethought in those guys minds who you know choose to come down and play college puck just because then you're giving yourself at least some sort of safety net however minimal it is yeah i think there's uh there might be i'm not 100 percent sure on this but there might be some kind of aspect of the american schooling system and how uh like the WHL or well, the OHL has, you know, Erie, Plymouth, um, Saginaw. So we have American schools and American teams in the OHL as well. But, uh, I, I never, I never asked one of the players what their high school experience was like. Yeah. Um, if it was difficult or, cause I, I, I know even trying to probably transfer back to like your own hometown. Cause at the end of the season, a lot of times right. you will, you, you have the opportunity to go back and finish school in your hometown and you probably can't do that from, when you're playing in the yeah. states i have a interesting story so my music teacher actually um had the chance to um teach john Tavares when he was playing the oshawa generals yep and he uh, she would always say like again like what josh said it's not really prioritized for the schoolings like number one it's always the hockey and since like you know you guys are traveling all over ontario and it's like you guys still have like don't you guys have like 
teachers and like, or like tutors on the road with you, right? They do now. Um, okay. What they did with us back then was uh, there was a lot of, um, they would just make up for it. Like if we, if we did, weren't at school for a day, the teachers would email us all the work that we missed. Um, they would arrange it with us to, you know, give us a little bit of a grace period to hand in an assignment or stuff like that. So there's those kind of aspects where school was, um, it wasn't like the main focus by any means, but they still gave it, gave us ways to be able to manage it as easy as possible for us. But there's a lot of times like you're going to like regular high schools for the most part at, uh, in the OHL and some, some of the teachers are just, you know, regular teachers. So it's not like you're getting too much of a, a great education from high school, like, and right. because of the, the care factor, it's, I mean, like the OHL sells it, they sell it really good to the parents. I, I experienced it when I was coaching that, that team with Quinton in the minor midget season. I got to see the OHL like pitch what the OHL is to all these parents and players that are going to get drafted next year. And it, they stay, they are do a good job at selling it, but um, the schooling isn't really a big focus unless you choose to focus on school yourself. Yeah. 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 Uh, Taveras, like just to elaborate on the story a bit more, um, our teacher, of course, she like, he would come into class like maybe once every few weeks and then at that it's just like filler work for the day until he's back out on the road because it's never really yeah never get the chance to actually sit down and actually work with them it's just like oh you're here for one day it's like here's your work it wasn't it's it's not a normal student teacher student high school experience by any means and it's not in a in a better favor for the this athlete to be able to get schooling yeah. You can, I think you can do unorthodox ways of going through schooling and it can still be beneficial for the athlete, but it's not like that in the OHL. Yeah. 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 And that, you know, that's kind of the difference with NCAA stuff where at least with hockey, it's not like football in the States. It's not like basketball in the States where in that regard, the NCAA, yeah, it's iffy that, you know, mm. you're certainly, there's been documentaries about it, you know, how, you know, teachers get to fudge grades and all stuff like that just to make sure these guys can continue to play just because it is on such a national spectacle here. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. Hockey, it flies under the radar. I mean, even in states like Massachusetts or Minnesota, it's still, there's a really good balance that's found, at least from what I've heard, that's certainly different than what you would get if you're a student athlete playing one of those bigger market sports. Uh, so I certainly does. I certainly do think that there's a difference maker catalyst in there for people to come down. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Even if the hockey isn't as great, it all depends on, you know, where your priorities are. Yeah. And like it, at the end of the day, it, like from my coaching experience, I, I share with parents all the time, like it, the competition is not always the main thing you need to be looking at as far as like when you're developing years, you need to look at like every aspect of how can you develop? What's the best ways that you can develop, whether it's the best coach that you can work with, um, best league that you can play so that it's fitting to what you need to develop in. And if the focus is just to develop, get better every single day, then you don't really need to take care about anything else. Everything else will just take care of itself. 
Yeah. You know, there's, and, a lot, there's a lot of parents these days that they like to, there's, there's the, you know, the crazy hockey parent kind of terminology that's thrown around all the time and it's thrown around sensitively at times from coaches to like a, uh, just around play, uh, around parents, but it's the truth. Parents, uh, they try to sometimes control the, the players, their, their child's life and the, what they're going to experience. And like the, the child's there to play the game and, they need to just kind of be brought to the game and be made sure that the child's in a good situation that when he comes there, he's happy and, yep. you know, that kind of thing. Like those are the things that really need to be focused and cared about from a development age point. When you got to like really care about the game, it's when the, you know, you're getting evaluated and judged and stuff based off of your performance. And that doesn't come till junior yeah, and like you were mentioning a while back, just how the United States Hockey League is kind of like a filler league just until they make the jump to the NCAA. And then you look at the OHL and it's like, you can you said it was considered semi-pro. What do you think allows, like with you playing, what do you think allows like their development and how well they always do at the NHL draft? What what puts them at the top of like the developmental leagues? In- well, they, they, they prep, they have a very, um, they have a, like I said, a replicated professional environment so when when players are evaluated from the ohl or just major junior in general chl they are evaluated with within playing in a professional field already so you tend to like get a better understanding of how this person's going to be as a professional from seeing them at the major junior level but, you know, there are guys that stand out in the NCAA and there are times when NCAA guys play world juniors and they mesh with the, the semi-professional guys. So, like, there's, there's ways for NCAA guys to, you know, get that stage that they can be on from a professional realm. But I think there's that little bit of an aspect where you don't know exactly what the guy's going to be like in a professional realm of hockey. It's different in the NCAA. But you get some guys like, like Quentin where it's like who cares you see how exceptional this kid is you know it so he's a first rounder top five or I think he's seventh overall whatever but um was I think that's why they were playing you were were you the coach of the Toronto Marlboros you yeah were... I was I was assistant coach with Quentin that year okay yeah um, yeah and then uh their dad was the coach for the Marlies right yeah that... Jimmy Jimmy Hughes was uh when I was there he was the player development coach for the Maple Leafs. Okay. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. that's why and you mentioned earlier you didn't really have the the connection that you did with Luke then with Quinton and uh Jack. Yeah, like uh so when I my first year of coaching I was um I said like the 2004 age group they were the kids that just got drafted this year into the OHL. Yeah. And uh so Luke was a 2003 and Paul Coffey was coaching his team. Paul Coffey's kid was on the team and stuff. So that was kind of like my first time of meeting Jim Hughes, their dad, and Paul Coffey and so on. That whole organization really liked me. So when we finished that season, Dan Brown was the head coach of the minor midget team, which was Quentin's team. He was looking for an assistant coach. And so they, um, they brought me on board on that team. And I got to meet Jimmy now on a different level because, you know, I'm coaching his son and Jim Hughes is a, it makes their, their uh, Jim's wife, Ellen, the, the kid's mom as well. 
the both of them are just incredible hockey people. They just they eat, sleep, drink the sport. It's unbelievable. So it was really nice to meet them. Uh, Wendell Clark's kid was on the team, so I got to. Wendell was like my favorite player growing up. To be able to like you know sit and and have a couple of drinks and chats and that kind of stuff with Wendell was really cool. Working with the O fours, you've had the chance to work. Oh, with Luke. With Luke and I think Ty Nelson as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ty, uh, I coached Ty. I coached against Ty in um, that first year. Man, that was uh, that was really cool. That was really eye opening to me to see nine year olds play hockey the way that those kids played. Yeah. It was amazing. And Ty, Ty was one of those kids that was just like, holy crap, I've never seen a kid play hockey like this. And then to see Ty grow up, I coached him. I coached him in a, in two, two or three tournaments in the year that they get uh, contact. So that was Bantam. And uh, now he's like a little bit of a teenager kind of point. So I got to see like him with a little bit more size and speed and skill and the game is really going in a great direction. It's the, you're getting a lot more of like those Quentin Hughes type of kids, those McDavid type of kids. It's not going to be an exceptional, like one or two every couple of years. Like every year is going to be producing kids that can not necessarily be that much different from the whole crowd, but they, they all can play at the next level right when they get up there. So it's pretty cool. I think you're, I think you're kind of seeing that across the board for sports, you know? It's really cool to see. Uh, Aaron, thank you for coming no on. Problem. We appreciate your time, and uh, we're looking forward to having you on again. This has really been a great time. For sure. Likewise. I had a lot of fun, guys, and uh, got a lot of potential with this podcast you got going, so have lots of fun with it. Thank right. you. Thanks. Thank you. We would just like to thank Aaron for coming on the podcast this week, and thank you to everyone who listened. So uh, definitely check out our Twitter at Throwing Podcast. Uh, check out all our updates there as far as new episodes and when they'll be coming out. Uh, And thanks for listening. So uh, make sure to tune back again next week on Saturday, and have a good one.